lent to, to grow deeper in Scripture and to think more about the heart of who God really is. And we're going to be reading together the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, during this journey of the Gospel of Luke, which starts with the birth of Jesus, and we'll, by, the, by the end of this series we will end at the cross and the tomb, if you, if, you journey, if you journey with us towards this end, you will find that you have maybe read and thought about some of the stories of the Gospel of Luke in ways you've never seen them before because of the series that we're going to be in together. On the very back of every outline, I am going to every week give you uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday readings. You'll notice that they are very bite-sized. That's what I call them. They're very bite-sized scriptures. And what I'm going to invite you to do is every day in this series to read a small bite-sized portion of Luke. If that means for you that you need to do what I do and have a Bible in your car, get a Bible in your car, okay? So it's sitting right, you, now don't read it while you're driving, but, but you can have it sitting right there to remind you, boy, I'm going to take five minutes a day and read a bite-sized portion of Luke. Now, let me tell you about my home. I grew up in Augusta, Georgia, not too far from here, and I, I grew up with my dad not going to church, but my mom regularly going to church. And um, I learned a lot of things of faith from my mother. And one of the things I learned from my mother was to do something during the season that leads to Easter, what we call Lent. Now, I must tell you that I learned it wrong, okay? Uh, for my mom, Lent was all about giving up chocolate. She gave up chocolate every year. And that's what I thought Lent was. Well, you give up chocolate, okay? Okay, so I, I've kind of grown up and, and kind of learned that maybe chocolate's a good thing to give up, or maybe not. I'd rather give up something more important. And so that's what I do now with Lent. And so here's what I want to invite you. And some of you probably are already doing certain things for Lent. You've already decided you're going to give up soft drinks or whatever. Here's what I'm imploring you, challenging you, asking you to do. Would you give up five to ten minutes a day? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Would you give up five minutes a day, find some place to get quiet, and read a bite-sized portion of Scripture? I believe in these Scriptures you will meet the God who brings the gospel to nobodies. And more importantly than even that, in that journey, you will have seen Jesus through the eyes of Luke, who actually never met Jesus, but met Jesus through others. And at the end of the journey, we'll get to Easter, and with those little bite-sized portions that you'll read every day, you'll have read the entire gospel of Luke. So here's the challenge. Would you give up five, I think it's, Five, might be ten, but normally just five minutes a day to together, just like your neighbor there, read the Gospel of Luke together, and let's see what God would do in our hearts and lives during this series. Now today, I'm so glad you're here because it's part one of an eight-part series, and uh, today is very foundational. Every week, I'm not going to talk about the Gospel of Luke and who Luke was, but I am today. And so understanding and hearing from the very beginning is very important about who Luke was and what his goal was and, and how he began, even the beginning pages of his gospel, to tell us who God is. And so I'm so glad that you're here today because today kind of paints a foundation for the journey for us. And we're going to understand a lot about Luke. Now the series is called The Gospel to Nobodies. Who are the nobodies that I'm going to be referencing? Now, if you're a student of the Gospels, if you've read all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
John, you know that every one of them talks about God coming to planet Earth for the marginalized, for those who are poor, for those who are hurt and hungry, not for the elite. He came to show the way of the humble and to reach the humble. That was the message in every one of the Gospels. But how Luke is unique is that Luke very intentionally tells stories with the viewpoint, and I think it has a lot to do with his audience, about how and who God brought his message to. And so as you're reading through Luke, every one of the Gospels talks about how, how God has a heart for the, the poor, the marginalized, but, but Luke, maybe above all, is telling the stories. He's giving us examples of how God cares about the nobodies. And so uh, before, I, before I go too deeper, I just want to give you a picture of the Holy Land because that's the place where Jesus came, right? He came to the Holy Land. Um, so um, track with me here real quickly. In our world, when I say the word nobodies, maybe your mind would think about folks who are uneducated, folks who are uh, unemployed, folks who think society has left them behind, folks who think nobody cares about them. It would be anyone who feels like they don't have friends, they don't have family, they're just out there and nobody really cares. That's, that's in our world. But what I want to help you understand was Luke wasn't writing into our world. Luke was writing into his world. And so let me help you understand real quickly how the nobodies got to Jesus' world. You see, there was a period of time where God allowed his people to be taken captive so their hearts would be returned back to him. And when they finally came back from a, a place of enslavement in Babylonia and they started coming back, they didn't all come back to what's present-day Israel all at one time. They actually came in three different diasporas, or what's called remnants. Three different times, groups of them were released and let go because they were being held in slavery. And so what actually happened was when one group of Jews returned back to Israel, I mean, their homeland had been desolated. They hadn't been there in a couple of hundred, three hundred years, and they come back, and now they, they're, they're back to their place, but they've got to reestablish their whole lives and their families aren't even with them. Half of them are still back. They haven't come forward. And so what actually ended up happening was as the Jews returned to the homeland in the first and in the second remnant, instead of them returning and establishing their religion, instead of returning back to Yahweh immediately, instead of establishing their Jewish culture, what they actually did was they began to do things that, were, that really weren't setting up the Jewish nation the right way. And they actually began to intermarry with other, other cultures and other, other societies and nations. And... So when the entire diasporas got back, one of the things that had happened was there were Jews who had returned to the homeland, but now they, for some people, they were, they were mixed breed. They had married other outside, outside the Jewish faith. They weren't following the Jewish faith just you know, properly. They weren't, they weren't religiously astute. And these were the people in the Bible you've heard of, one section of them was called the Samaritans. That's exactly who the Samaritans were. The Samaritans were actually Jews who returned to the homeland, but now they'd intermarried and they were considered unclean. They were no longer Jewish, pure, and they weren't devout. And so if you were a Jew in the day of Jesus, if you were a religious Jew whose family had always been Hebrew and Jewish, those are the people. Those people who intermarried, those people who were poor, those people who are not following the Jewish religion the right way, those people were put aside. Those don't have anything to do with them. As a matter of fact, those people will make us unclean. And they called those people, and that, they even have a Hebrew phrase, they called them the people of the land. 
because they were not to be associated with. As a matter of fact, they would literally go around the geographical zone they lived in to make sure that they weren't impurified, made impure by these people of the land who had returned to the land and now they had done things that caused them to be not fully Jewish and impure. These were the people who had been marginalized by the culture Jesus was born into. Now what Luke is going to show us in this entire series, if there's a theme, here's the theme. Luke is going to show us story after story after story after story where Jesus shows up and he gives us a different picture of who God is. Jesus shows up to the hurting, to the ignored, to the ignorant, to the marginalized, to those who are invisible to everybody else, or maybe even shunned by everybody else. Jesus shows up and he says, you know who God is? You know who the God of heaven really is? He's the God who cares about nobodies. You may think the temple, you may think the priests, you may think the religious Jews, listen, just because they don't care about you, don't lose sight of who God is. Jesus shows up and says, God comes to nobodies. And you know what he does? He comes to nobodies with a message. He says, I came for you. I care about you. I love you. You are somebody to me. So as we journey through Luke, and you read these stories, I pray that on your mind, through your eyes, through your, through your understanding, I pray there's a filter. I'm going to look for nobodies everywhere as I read through Luke. I'm going to look for them everywhere. And what you'll find is that Jesus over and over again is meeting nobodies and showing them that there's a somebody that cares about them. And what you'll also find in the process, now don't miss, I'm about to say something deep. You might want to write it down somewhere. What you'll also find is that Jesus is looking around at the somebodies, you know, the people who have the educations, the people that everybody recognizes their names. He's looking around the people who have money, who have power, who have prestige, who have it all. He's looking at them and saying, you know what you are? You are a somebody. But you're really only a somebody when you understand that your role and your mission in life is to reach nobodies and show them that there's a somebody. Did you get that? I'll say it differently one more time. You know the somebodies of this world? If you're really a somebody, you understand that your mission in life is to help nobodies understand that there is a somebody. This is what we're going to learn from Luke. And... Maybe we would learn it even in the opening stories together. Good morning. My name is Lucas, but my friends call me Lucas. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you my story. It's pretty unbelievable, and I still can't believe it happened to me. Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just 
Lucas. So one night, my friend and I were sitting around talking, swapping manly stories, when all of a sudden an angel appeared. So I look over at my friend, just to make sure we're not both going crazy. Then the angel spoke, and in this deep, rich voice it said, do not be afraid. Well, looking back on it, that's all well and good, but in the moment it's like, how am I not going to be afraid? You're a light, and you're talking. That's scary. Then the angel spoke and it said, a savior has been born in Bethlehem and he will be wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then I thought, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. A savior, Christ, is going to be born in a manger? A manger where dirty animals eat? While all these thoughts running through my head, a whole army of angels appeared and they filled the sky with the brightest light you've ever seen. It was as if the stars had fallen on earth and were praising God right there in front of us. It was amazing. There's no other word for it. Amazing. Well, as quickly as they appeared, they left. And my friend and I were left there, head spinning, trying to figure out what on earth had just happened. And in one of those moments where two people can look at each other and know exactly what the other one's thinking, we both said, let's go to Bethlehem. So we went. And when we got to Bethlehem and we saw the Christ child, the savior of man, Jesus, lying in a manger. I don't know any words that could do it justice. It was remarkable. And I got to tell you, I was a different man after that day because God chose me. And no one had ever chosen me before. And I'll never forget what the angel said. He said, I bring good news for all people. And that means you too. So the question before us is, what's God's like? What is God like? What does the heart of God really look like? Hey, if you've got your outline in front of you there, if you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke with me, verse and chapter 1, 1. We're going to start right at the very beginning together, okay? We're going to learn that God is a God of love and that He's going out of His way to reach out and to connect with the rejected, the invisible, the small, and the hurt. So in Luke 1, verse 1, it says this, 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. We're going to discuss right at the very beginning who Luke is, okay, together. And so if you have your pen, I want to invite you to underline some things, maybe even circle some things, even in that opening scripture from Luke 1, verse 1. And it's right at the very beginning. You might want to underline that opening phrase that says that he had drawn up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Notice it's an account. It's not the account. It's one account. And Luke was very aware that some other folks had started writing some accounts of Jesus, and so we'll learn in a minute who Luke is, but this is what Luke, the Gospel of Luke is all about. It is, it is his account of how the, the good news has been fulfilled among us. Now, who was Luke? Luke was uh, a doctor. We learned that from his writing, a physician. That's who he was. Uh, most scholars believe from the way he wrote that he was a Gentile, so he was not Jewish. And many of them uh, talk about, they have, he was a friend of Paul because Paul even references him as a friend. So here's a guy who really came into the world of, of, of what God was doing with, through Christianity around the time of the ministry of Paul. Now what's interesting is, again, he had never met Jesus. So what Luke set out to do was he wanted to go and do an interview, an investigation. He wanted to meet people who had, who had talked and walked with Jesus, and he wanted to set his own account in place of the stories he learned. And so that's what the Gospel of Luke is. Notice itself says right down there a little bit later, it says, I myself have carefully investigated. That's who Luke is. It's, it's like Luke is an eyewitness reporter, so to speak. He's going out on the scene, and he wants to introduce himself to others and say, hey, what is, what is your recollection? What did you hear him say? And he's learning about the teachings of Jesus, the meetings of Jesus. He's learning a lot about the story, and he's writing it all down. Now, who is he writing it to? The Bible will tell you there's a guy named Theophilus. You, you saw that name. You might want to circle that name. Theophilus is the person that Paul, in the very introduction, says, I am putting all this in place for you. Now, Theophilus is a kind of funny name. Matter of fact, no, no children are named Theophilus anymore that I'm aware of. Theo, but not Theophilus. And, um, and, and you have to break apart that word if you really want to understand who Theophilus is. Uh, the word uh, phylos, we get that same word from phileo, love, brotherly love. Okay, this, is like, this is like the love you would have for a friend, all right? This is a friendship love. And then the, the word, the, the portion of the, the starting of the name, theo, means God. So literally, Theophilus means a friend of God. You might want to write that in your margin. And it's interesting that Luke is writing to a guy named Theophilus. Now, here's the interesting thing. Theologian, hey, we, we don't know whether this is a real person. Or whether it's like he's writing it to any friends of God that are out there. All right? Now, I'll tell you what my opinion is, but what I want you to understand is this is a huge debate. Is Luke writing to a person who actually employed him to go and get these accounts and investigate Jesus? And that guy's name is Theophilus, so he's writing, him, he's writing to this guy? Or is Luke so smart, cleverly, that when he, when he titles his, his memoirs, he says to any friends of God out there, to the Theophilus out there. Now, personally, I believe that a person had employed him because of the words right before the name. 
you'll notice it says, most excellent Theophilus. And that normally means that he has been employed by somebody, he's writing for that somebody, and that somebody's a pretty big somebody. They've given him money to go out and they're helping him, take, they're helping him live so he can investigate the claims of Jesus and he can spend his time learning the stories and writing the account. Now, if that is the case, and I don't know whether that's the case or not, sometimes I read, the, I read the Gospel of Luke and I like to think of me as Theophilus. I'm the friend of God. He's writing to me. But if that is the case, I want you to think about this for a minute. Luke is going to be writing a story to a somebody, somebody who's got money, somebody who's big, somebody who can afford it. This is probably a person who really wants to know, tell me the heart of what this Jesus character is all about. And the way Luke's going to tell the story is pretty amazing because he, he doesn't hold it back. He goes ahead and delivers his message of what he learns. He tells the somebody that the God we're talking about as revealed in Jesus was a God who is all about the nobodies. And the implications of that are huge. Even as he writes to this guy, what are the implications? Because as Luke writes, and he keeps over and over again pointing not to the somebodies of the world, but to the nobodies of the world, you have to just ask yourself, what is Luke saying about God? Luke is saying the heart of God is for nobodies. Now, let's pass forward a little bit in this first chapter. The first chapter of Luke is really about two births. And if you look, just hold your Bible in your lap. And by the way, that would be a very smart thing for you to do during this, during this series. Actually bring your Bible with you so that you can actually kind of flip before and see what was before I'm going to be preaching and flip after, you know, kind of have it as a reference. You might want to flip a few pages over and see where he's going. But in this first chapter, the, Luke starts with the birth of two people, John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. Now, this is a very familiar story. I know but I want to read the scriptures, and I'm not going to read them repeatedly, repeatedly because we just got through Christmas and most of you know the stories, okay? But I'm going to, I'm going to read them, and I'm going to look through a different lens, okay? And so uh, in Luke 1, verse 26, he says this, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary. If you have your pen, circle two words in that. Circle the word Nazareth and circle the word Mary because that's what we're going to kind of dwell down on. So first of all, let's talk about Nazareth. I, I have to remind you, especially those of you who've been to the Holy Land and you've actually seen modern day Nazareth. Nazareth is a pretty big town now and that's because of tourism. I mean, it is a happening, hopping spot, okay? But in the time of Jesus, Nazareth was a dirt town. Matter of fact, here's a map, and I don't know if you can see it very well, but I want to break this down, and I want to remind you how small Nazareth was. This is, <laughs> that's the wrong map. Uh, we'll get the right one up in a minute. Um, but, but Jesus did most of his ministry, 80% of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, okay? And right to the west of that Sea of Galilee, tell me whenever, uh, there we go, right to the west of the Sea of Galilee, I'll tell you what, before we get there, see the Sea of Galilee? See the, this is, it's called sometimes the Sea of Galilee, um, the Sea of Tiberias, it's just a big, big, big lake, frankly, all right? It's a big lake. You'll notice that, that water tributary that runs all the way down to the Dead Sea. That's the Jordan River, you know, where Jesus was baptized, where the Israelites, there's a lot of good stuff that happened in the Jordan River. And then uh, the Dead Sea is down here towards the bottom, 
very close to uh, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, um, Jericho, all of that. We've got to go way up top because way up top where the Sea of Galilee is, is where Jesus did 80% of his ministry. And if you've ever been there, you know why. I mean, it is a beautiful, beautiful place. Now, what's interesting about the Sea of Galilee, come over a little bit and you'll see um, if you look close enough, or maybe you can look at it on your phone or on a different map, you, you, you'll see the town of Nazareth. But right next to the town of Nazareth was a very prominent city in the day because in Jesus' day, Nazareth was just a dirt town. Sephorus, you'll see it right there, listed right above Nazareth. Sephorus was a metropolis during the time of Jesus. Sephorus was where all the universities were. It was where all the, the, uh, the money places were. The rich people lived in Sephorus. As a matter of fact, you know who lived in Nazareth? The people who cleaned the toilets for the people in, in, in Sephorus, okay? And we forget that. We, we think about Nazareth. We don't even know the town. But God, listen, God chooses a girl in a dirt town. He chooses a girl who is poor. He doesn't even choose an adult woman. He chooses a young lady, and he is going to call her to do a great thing. Now, the next thing is Mary, right? Even beyond that little small Nazareth. Um, there, by the way, I, I need to go back. Notice in Bible, it says, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Who is Luke talking to? He's talking to Theophilus. And then he says this, and I hardly ever noticed before, a town in Galilee. By the way, this is as if he just said this. Theophilus, I know you ain't ever heard of Nazareth before, so here's where it's at. It's in this region, okay? Do you get that picture? He's telling Theophilus, you won't even know where this town's at. You might even not find it on a map. It's in the Galilee area. That's where God sent the angel to. And who does he send the angel to? Mary. Mary. Now, who was Mary? Mary was basically a teenage girl, uneducated, and probably from a very, very poor family. And it's to her that an angel shows up and says, blessed are you. Blessed are you. The angel unfolds the story, and we're not going to read it all together, but you know the story. You're the one I've chosen. Now, at the time, the angel didn't say it this way, but God was choosing a nobody. God was choosing a nobody, and what, what, let me tell you, as I was studying this past week, you know what came to me? Just, have you ever had this thought? Sometimes I have thoughts I've never had before, and I thought, yay, that's kind of like God, because they're not my thoughts. Here's the God thought I had this week. On the planet, at the very moment that Gabriel came to Mary, do you think there was a bigger job on the whole planet? Have you ever, if you could just find out the most important work on the whole planet at that moment, what would it be? It would be that moment. It would be that girl. Let me say it differently. God chose a nobody to give the biggest job on the whole planet. He didn't pick a somebody. Is that not amazing? And he did it with a teenager. What? And this is, wow, wow. This is who God is. Now let's skip forward a little bit. You know that she goes to visit her her sister Elizabeth, who's pregnant with a child, and you know, yeah, hopefully you've heard the story about how when Elizabeth hears her voice, her baby jumps, and Elizabeth prophetically understands you have the Messiah inside of you, and it must have liberated her. She probably had all kinds of pressure on her, and she explodes in song. But with the filter of the God who brings a gospel of good news and love to the nobodies, here Mary's Magnificat a little different way. In Luke 1, 47, 51, and 53, Listen to what Mary cries out. My soul 
glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has scattered those who are proud. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted the humble, and he has filled the hungry with good things. You hear those words, the humble state. Scattered the proud, brought down rulers, but he has lifted the humble. He's fed the hungry. Do you hear the gospel to nobodies in that? Do you hear the heart of God about what God is doing in this place by choosing nobodies to communicate how much he loves and cares for them? This is what we learn from Luke if you look for the story and you see it through the lens that this is the God he's revealing who this God is. Now, let's push forward even a little bit more. Kind of weird to be reading a Christmas story in February, isn't it? Oh, it's March now. Okay. Really, even weirder. So, uh, so what happens? Well, Mary and Joseph learn, just like everybody else in the land, that there's going to be a census, and that they've got to leave their hometown and go down to the place where his ancestry, the, the husband's ancestry was from. So that's exactly what they do. They head on a journey when it's about time for her to, to birth the child, down to Bethlehem. Now, I was thinking about, I don't know how many of you have had babies before, and, and I've never had a baby, but I was part of it. Um, I, I was thinking about my wife, and if I had to tell her we were going to go on about a seven-day journey, you know, by some animal when she was very pregnant, life would not have gone very well for me, okay? She would not have been very happy about that news, but here's what happened. That's the truth. The truth of the story is she is whoop full, right? She's about to have a baby, and they've got to go on a long journey, and they go to that journey. They go down to Bethlehem, and you remember the story. They get there. There was no room for them in the end, right? And they end up literally birthing Jesus in a manger. Let's read that story together, right? The Bible says in Luke 2, 6 and 7, while they were there, that's Bethlehem. We'll talk about that in a minute. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's get a picture of that for a minute. And I can't show you a, a really, really good picture, but I want to show you a video. What I want to do is I want to take you to the Church of the Nativity. Um, and it's not actually the Church of the Nativity. What's it called? Oh, it's a different name for it. Church of Nativities in Nazareth. It, this is a church. I'm going to show you a video of a church that's in Bethlehem. And um, I'm just going to let the video play, and I want to show you a few things about the video. Uh, so hopefully several of you have been there before. Um, now, what's interesting is Bethlehem is not in Jewish territory. You know that in, you know that in, in Bethlehem and, and, in, and in Israel, there are certain Palestinian territories, there are certain Jewish territories. Well, Bethlehem sits in a Palestinian territory, so there's gates and guards and all that kind of stuff just to get to Bethlehem. When I went on one tour there, any minute now, when I, was, when, when I went on one tour there, um, uh, we almost didn't get into Bethlehem because it was Palestinian territory, and the Palestinian guards had to board our buses and see whether they would allow us to go in. Can we turn the lights down? Thank you. This is the square that leads into the, the church where they honor where Jesus was born, and you will always see crowds at this place because from all over the world, they journey to Bethlehem to see where Christ was born. This is the only door that lets into the church. You'll notice you have to duck down to get through that door. Now, Constantine, the first Christian emperor, actually built this church, and they had to redo this door. They built it that way because over and over again, 
armies tried to take over this place and occupy the, uh, the, this place where it was, so, was, was, was renowned to be the birthplace of Christ. They built that doorway so that no horses could go through there. You had to get off and you had to stoop down to get through it. This is the interior of the church. It's very ornate. It's very Gothic. It's very orthodox. And it, it, is, it is a place where you just kind of stand back. It's very quiet. People hardly talk in this space. They walk around from image to image. There's a mosaic floor that you're walking on, but actually three feet beneath that floor is the original floor that they have opened a portion of it where you can see actually the floor of Constantine. People bow at an altar, and then they go down a stairway. They have to stand in a line to go down a stairway, and that stairway leads to the very bottom underneath this church to this place. This is the place where they believe was the cave that was beneath the house where Jesus was born. Animals were kept oftentimes in the cave beneath the house. And as you bow down to that little star, you reach into that star, and there, right there is the rock that they believe marks the spot. It has been, this is the spot for centuries that they have honored to be the place. Sorry. I got emotional for my moment to reach into that star. This is believed to be the place that God came to the world. We'll bring the house lights up and stop the video. Just notice a couple things about that. I love that I have to stoop to go into that church. And I know it was forced back and I know it was a military thing, but I still love that I have to stoop to go into that church. And I love also that I have to wait in line to go and see because it reminds me that what I'm doing is important to people all over the world. And I'm waiting in line to go see this place, whether it's right or not, this place that marks the spot that they believe Christ came into the world. And, and I also love that, um, remember, remember the words. I mean, we get lost in the words. We, we're told it was an inn. Actually, the, the word is kataluma. It's, it's actually the word house. So it was probably a house that, that guests could come and pay money to be in rooms. But you've got to understand this. The Bible says there was no room in the inn. There was no room in the Cataluma. There was no room in the house. But the truth of the matter is, it was a census time. There's people everywhere, you know. So it was probably fully busy. But if you let a pregnant woman into a room and she had the baby there, that room would become impure and unclean. And so the innkeeper says, we don't have room for you. But you can use the space for the animals. Now, in your house where you live, probably you probably have a garage, well, this was kind of like the garage of the first century home. It was down there that the animals were. It was down there where the feeding was. It was down there where a lot of, of, the, of the house storage was. And it's in that place that they go down to this place that, you know, they descend into the cave that was probably beneath the house. And it's in that place that Jesus is born. He's born in a barn. He's born in a cave. He's born in a first century garage. He's born with the animals. And you know the story, they lay him in a manger. They lay him in a food trough. That's where they lay him. And I just want to compare those two scenes with me. Because let me tell you, when I went to Israel the first and second time, first time I ever went was Christmas. That was kind of providential. And um, we were taking a tour of Bethlehem. We were seeing all the sights. This was the most holy moment to go to this church and to kneel down and touch the place where we believe Jesus was born. But before we left Bethlehem, we, we pulled up on, on kind of a hill about to leave the city. 
And our bus tour guide just stopped us, and he said, I want you to notice something. And he said, everybody look out your windows. And we looked east towards Jerusalem, towards the Dead Sea, and this is what we saw. This big mountain. <laughs> We're training new tech folks right now, so <laughs> sometimes things are a little bit slower, but that's okay. They're, they're, oh, not the video, the, the mountain. We looked out, and there was a mountain. And our tour guide said to us, this is not a regular mountain. This is called Herodium. I didn't ever, I've never gotten to tour Herodium. But this is actually a man-made mountain. There's a guy named Herod. You know all about him, right? You know the one who was searching, the one who was killing the babies? This is Herod. And during the very time of Jesus, you know what Herod did? Herod was a major builder. He built waterways. He built towns. He built palaces. He decided right outside of Bethlehem, he was going to build him a city that would be a fortress that if he ever was under siege, he could go to it and it would be his protection zone. To this day, it's called Herodium. And what he did was he brought in massive amounts of sand upon sand upon sand upon sand, and he built his own mountain. And way down in the heart of that were chambers and chambers and changers. They weren't all for security. Most of them were. But there were, there were gymnasiums. There were saunas. There were luxurious places down within there. This is Herodium. Let me show you what it would have looked like during the birth of Jesus. It would have actually looked more than just a little hill or tell like that where he'd brought in the dirt. He built this place up like a palace. It would actually look like that with Bethlehem below. This is the king, Herod. If there is a somebody, this is the somebody. And look what he builds for himself. And here's the beauty of the gospel. The real somebody comes into the world. And he doesn't come in a palace. He doesn't come in a, you know, a nice little hospital like we birthed our children. And you know what he comes into? A first century garage, a barn, a trough. What kind of God is this, Theophilus? Who this is the way he chooses to come. I wanted to show you a picture of the Herodium. Because if you go to Bethlehem, you'll see it. It's sitting right there. And you'll see, wow, these are two pictures, very different pictures of two different kings. What does that tell us about who God is? So let's move forward. I love this story. We're going to close. Luke 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. You know the story, right? The angels tell the good news, go and find him, you'll find the babe. And what, what the Bible says, so they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. This is, this is incredible because in the very opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke, Luke is saying God is choosing a nobody, born of a nobody town, and then after the baby is born, guess who the first people he's inviting to go see the baby are? They're poor animal keepers, they're shepherds, they're the lowest rung of society, and they're the first people invited to go and see the new baby. Real quick question for you. I mean, seriously answer this question for yourself. When you had your babies, if you've ever had babies before, you know, I've had, we, no, my wife's had three, uh, we've, had, we, we've had three babies, right? Let me just go to the first one, because this was Mary's first baby, right? When Abby was born, I don't know who came to visit the baby when your babies were born. 
but we only invited somebodies, okay? You had to be a somebody to come see Abby. And if you got to come see Abby, woo, you knew, you, yeah, this is awesome. This is the greatest baby on the planet. Wow, you know. And let me tell you, if you actually came and you were allowed to hold the baby, you were really a somebody. You know what I mean? Am I alone? Most of us don't have nobodies coming and visiting our babies. We don't. We don't go out and say, oh, I don't care. Come see the baby. You know, we don't do that. Would you get the heart of God? God doesn't invite the somebodies of the world. The first people that show up to hold the baby, to look at the baby, are the dirty people from the field. And they're poor. And they're nobody. And God says, he sends an angel to them. He says, oh, you be the first ones. Is that crazy or what? I love it. I love it. It shows us the heart of God because this is God. He gives nobodies the greatest honor. That's who he is. Hey, don't miss this series. I think you're going to see a God who reaches nobodies, maybe in a way you've never seen him before. So here's the deal. Most of us in the room here today we're somebodies. You actually feel like a somebody. You got family. Many of you have jobs, education. You got friends. People know your name. People care about you. And I just want to speak to those of you in the room who are most of us. You're a somebody, and you know you're a somebody, all right? You may not be the big somebody, but you're somebody. You know what God's going to be teaching us, and I pray that God's already started teaching us this morning. To those of us who are somebody, and by the way, I'm a somebody, I know. I'm with you if you're a somebody. God's going to be teaching us a few things. And let me just say right out of the gate who those things are. For every somebody in the room, you know what he's going to be teaching us? For one, remember who you are you're somebody I made you as somebody don't forget who gave you all that you have to become a somebody that's the first thing he's going to teach us and you know the second thing he's going to teach us he's going to teach us that part of the reason I gave you the ability to be a somebody is because I wanted to put you on mission for me and here's your mission your mission is to help nobodies understand that there's a somebody who cares for them. That's the mission, that's the kingdom mission for every somebody on the planet to understand that their job in life is to help nobodies understand there's a somebody. And let me say this. I know this. There are some people in the room that feel like nobodies. Beyond the room, there are people that listen every week to us on our website and on iTunes. There are people listening right now who feel like nobodies. You feel invisible. You feel rejected. You've been hurt. Maybe you just feel like nobody cares. Nobody knows your name. 
for you, you just wonder, who cares about me and do I matter? And you certainly at the heart, the deepest place, wonder, I mean, does God really care? And I pray today, and I pray every week, and I pray as we move through this series, and you read those little bite-sized portions of Scripture, you know what I pray? I pray that along the way, you hear the God as Luke saw him say to you, the world can think you're a nobody, but you are my beloved. I came for you. I know all about you. You matter to me. I love you. Would you bow your head with me? Thank you for the gospel, Jesus. And it blows me away that you came the way that you did, but I just pray that you would help us through the story of Mary, help us to see how you pick nobodies and they matter to you, how you pick little towns, little dust towns like Nazareth, and how you even pick a manger and you show us, I'm not about the somebodies, I am all about the nobodies. And thank you for coming to the night shift workers, the shepherds out in the field, and you're just different. You're different, and we really need you to let the scales fall off of our eyes and help us see what your heart really is, God. How you don't, you don't ignore the marginalized. You don't ignore the poor. You, don't, you actually laser beam focus in on anyone who feels rejected or invisible. You zone in on them, and you go after them. And God, here's the truth. You've called us to do the same. So for every somebody here this week, I pray you'd give us eyes to see the nobodies all around us in our neighborhood, in our workplaces, where we live and play. Give us eyes like you have, Jesus, for the nobodies. And I also pray, Lord, for some nobody who's sitting here today and just wonders if you care. Would you whisper into their ear, you matter to me. I know you. I came for you, and I love you. Give us your heart as we journey towards Easter. Help us to see you anew. And do a good work in us, Jesus. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Aren't we just a blessed church that has such an amazing pastor that brings services like that? I just, Holy Spirit is just raining down in this place. So uh, I get the the exciting job of sharing with you the final results of our uh, fundraiser. And uh, this is really awesome. So what was our goal? I remember $2,023 was our goal. We beat our goal by 155%. Show them $3,141.97. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Jesus. The, the real winners of this, though, are going to be the youth house, the youth that are going to be in that house. I want every one of you to, to go, and when you see the 
furnishings for that cafe to know that you've made a difference. Because that's what these funds are going to be used for, is to furnish the cafe area of our youth house. So thank you for everyone's effort. But now we have to we have to give the glory to one side of the house or the other, the men or the women. Which one do you which one do you think came out on top? Do we think the women? <laughs> or the men? No? <laughs> All right, I have to turn it over to the men. They pulled it together. <laughs> My goodness, the men pulled it out, $700 to $496, but the women's jar was really full, so we didn't know until we counted all of that money, so um, thank you so much. And somebody pointed out that we have a lot fewer men in our congregation than women, so they really deserve an extra hug today for for stepping it up. Thank you, everybody, for uh, just really participating You're going to hear about more opportunities to help serve um, and to help uh, raise funds to finish this youth house. But again, this was a huge effort to get that furnishings for the cafe. So thank you so much. So now I'm going to pray over our tithes and offerings if you would bow your heads with me. Thank you, Father God. Just thank you. Can we just stop for a minute and just say thank you for all of the gifts that you give to us, Lord, every day. Sometimes we just rush through life and we forget to acknowledge you. To acknowledge that even in the little things that you're there, Lord, in the big things you're there, you're there always. Lord, thank you for being a God that asks us to to trust you with everything that we have. So that you can turn around and bless it back for us. So that we can then turn around and glorify and honor you, Lord. So I just pray a blessing over every tithe and offering that's presented here today, Lord God, that you would then take that and you would bless the person who gives it, Lord God, as they are giving out of obedience to you. Would you just bless them tenfold, Lord, and would you bless our church? Would you just rain down, Holy Spirit, over on our church as every heart in here seeks to glorify and honor you, Lord God? We just pray that you use us to reach out to the nobodies in our community, Lord God, and just help us to be that home that they feel comfortable, that they can come here and they can be blessed and they can find you. Lord, we just love you and praise you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. thousand times I fell, still your mercy remains. And should I stumble again, still I'm caught in your grace, everlasting 
Your light will shine when all else fades, never ending. Your glory goes beyond all faith.